You know, in our Tuesday morning meeting where we debrief the sermon from the last Sunday and talk and plan for the sermon in the future, we asked this question this week. Do we come on Sunday morning to find out more about God or to find out more about how I should live? Do we come to find out more knowledge of who God is because I don't know enough or more steps I need to navigate the next week? Well, actually, it's both because one instructs the other. How we view or how we live life depends on how we view God. If we see God as distant and disinterested, then we don't listen. But if we see God as as caring and watching, we listen. We're motivated by a relationship with God. Now, in our family, uh, we're trying to watch our weight, and um, some people would say, I like to put my weight where I like to watch it, but be that it is may, we're, we're trying to stay healthy. So when Suzanne's around, I eat salads. <laughs> when Suzanne's not around, I have a stash of cookies in the garage, and she's found it. It's in the bag of apples. <laughs> I think that makes sense. It's animal crackers, my, my favorite thing, but we're motivated by, by different things move us. And how we view life depends on, on, on our view of the living God. We've been studying the book of James, or we're going to be studying the book of James, and it's a book of how to live. It's gritty. It's how to live life. But Tim started us in Psalms because how we live life depends on how we see God. And that motivates us. And motivation is so important. You know, educators motivate, coaches motivate, parents motivate, employers motivate. Because it's so important to to go where we want to go. I was reading this week of an employer in Michigan has 50 employees. He wants them to be there on time. So he only has 45 parking spots. I don't know if that's going to work or not. Or the guy who, the kid who plays basketball in the front yard of his house and he lost his contact lens and he comes in, he says, mom, I lost my contact, can't find it. And she runs out there and she comes back soon with the contact lens. And she says, he says, I looked everywhere. How, how did you find it? She said, we were looking for two different things. You were looking for a contact lens. I was looking for $150. <laughs> and if you're a parent, you understand that probably a little more. Hmm. The staff from the dental office I go to is usually here on a Sunday, and they know me because I sometimes don't show up, and they have to call me, but it remind me of a guy who was always late to the dental office. So he called up one day, he's going to have a root canal, and says, I'm going to be late, is that 15 minutes late, is that all right? To which the dental person said, that will be fine, we just won't have any time for the anesthesia. <laughs> he showed up on time, of course. Motives change the way we behave. And the motivation to live for God is based on how we view God. What motivates us to read the book of James and follow its admonitions is because we know the God who has written this for us. So Tim started in Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me who pardons all my iniquities, who crowns me with loving kindness, 
This God who's patient, this God who loves me. Ah, I want to read what he has to say. And last week, Psalm 73, where the psalmist is talking about his view of the world, where people who aren't following God are doing great, but he's not doing well. And finally ends the psalm, and Psalm 73 says, Nevertheless, I am continually with thee. You have taken hold of my right hand, and with your counsel you will guide me. Whom have I in heaven but thee, and desire nothing on earth but thee. There's something about seeing God wanting to take his hand and counsel him. And God, the same God who holds our hand and walks with us, wants to teach us how to live. Now that holding your hand, that's the first lesson we teach our kids, right? Hold my hand, or one of the first lessons we teach our kids. We had two kids. One was independent. The other is more compliant. Adam, I see him sitting here in the front row, so I'm going to use him. He was more independent. Read that as you may want uh, to read. But I remember taking him to the zoo about six years old. We were in Trinidad, and there was a crocodile pit. It was open. There's little different standards overseas than there are here. And he immediately... I'm running. He's running. He just wants to see those crocodiles up close. So I grab his hand and I hold on to it. And he turns and says what he said to me so many times, dad, I can do it myself. And so as a father, I say, absolutely go at it. No, he's still here. I hold on to that hand. Because I love him, because I care for him, and because we have that relationship. And he still loves me now, because he has his legs, I suppose. Um, (laughs) How we live is dependent upon how we view God. So we remind ourselves when we come into the sanctuary, Tim said, do some homework. Make it more special. God accepts us as we are. God knows us who we are. He accepts us in, in, in our mess. But the living God of all creation looked down and saw you, created you, loves you, so much so that it says even when we were in our sins, when we were in full rebellion, before we were even born, God died for us so that we might have a relationship with him. We might love him. And he holds our hand and walks with us. And it's that God we come to worship. And it's that God who has written through the book of James. And we go there eagerly to read, what has he said? What does he want me to do? So turn with me to the book of James, chapter 1, verse 1. Today, if you read the e-news, it was today is a day on talking about Love Europe, on, on what God has done. But I'm so excited about James that we're going to start there. And in fact, all that God did through our Love Europe initiative is because of our view of the living God. James is a book that talks about real faith in a real world. It talks about genuine religion, genuine faith, genuine wisdom. It's real stuff. It doesn't hold back any punches. It's more gritty, more how to live life. Now, different people have seen it differently. Martin Luther thought it was the book of straw is what he called it because it was too much on how to live and not enough on faith. 
But actually the book of James talks about our walk of faith is seen by the way we live. Pastor Chuck said it best when he said, James looks a bit like the Old Testament book of Proverbs dressed up in New Testament clothes. It's how to live, but how to live well. It's how to talks about finding our wisdom in life, instruction about how to meet as a church, taming the tongue, how to make decisions, perspective when things go sideways, the path on how to handle differences when we disagree, how to pray effectively. Tim's going to cover all that. I'm just covering James chapter 1, verse 1. Read it with me. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now that's just half the verse, but I told him that's all I'd do so he could have the rest of the book. We're just going to take a look at James, who he was, how he got to where God led him. It says he's a servant, one who was chosen to follow someone else, someone who was chosen to give up his agenda, his ideas, his view to someone else's agenda and directives. A servant, a servant of who? It says a servant of God. The creator, the one who gave him breath. Not a bad idea to be a servant of the living God who made us. And of who? The Lord. It's not his first name. It's a a term of, of him being the Lord. The master, the one he worships. The Lord Jesus, the one who walked the earth. Second person of the Trinity. Jesus Christ, not his last name, but a term meaning the Messiah. James says, I am a servant willingly of the living God through the Lord Jesus Christ, my master and my Messiah. That says a lot about him. We're going to look through several passages about James' life. Because James was an interesting guy. Not who you think he was probably. As you read the New Testament, there's four men named James. James, the son of Zebedee, who was a fisherman. James, the son of of Alphaeus. We also have James, another James, who was another father of one of the disciples, Thaddeus. And then James, the half-brother of Jesus. Jesus had several brothers and sisters after he was born. Mary and Joseph had several children. And we see that in Matthew chapter 13, verses 54 and 55. It lists these kids. Jesus said in Matthew, and coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get his wisdom and his mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? So there were four brothers and sisters, James being the oldest of the younger brothers. So he had an interesting perspective, right? He grew up in the home. He saw Jesus sinless. He saw Mary and Joseph, his parents, who had heard directly from an angel of God. You would think, wow, James had a front seat on everything. But in John chapter 7, we see something different about James that we thought was, wow, that's a little different. In James 1, in James 7 actually, 1 through 5, we see that Jesus went about Galilee and he would not go into Judea because the Jews were still seeking to kill him. So his brothers come and talk to him. 
So now the feast of booths was at hand. So the brothers said to him, leave here, go to Judea, that your disciples may also see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed him. Now this is interesting. This is his brothers taunting him, as brothers do. This is his brother saying, we're tired of you. You're this big guy. You're making all this noise. You're saying the son of God. You're doing these miracles. Why don't you go further away from us? Why don't you show it to more people? They didn't even believe in him. In a sense, in his family, Jesus stood alone. And some of you know what that feels like. You come in church here and you see this community. You see family sitting together and you realize, I'm the only one in my family. Or there's others in my family that don't yet believe. A brother, a sister, my parents. And you feel alone even in a big crowd. Jesus stood there with his brothers not even believing, seeing everything and not believing him. But something happens in 1 Corinthians 15 that changes in James' life. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul describes the gospel. And in the middle of this description of the gospel, we find James. Paul says in verse 3, For I delivered to you as first importance what I also received, that Christ died for the sins in courting this with the scriptures. This is the shortest definition of the gospel in the scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, although some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And Paul goes on to say, then to me, the last of all the untimely ones. Something happens to James. He's seen his brother do these miracles. He's seen the power. He's heard the stories. He's listened to the teaching. But it's not until he sees his brother die and be in the grave for three days. Then walk in and come to him, appear to James personally. That James says, oh, <laughs> whoops, <laughs> wow, I take that back, <laughs> all the things I said to you. He realizes that Jesus is who he says he is. James responds to a discipleship journey. Jesus said to many, follow me. It was an invitation. And James says, yes, because we see in Acts chapter 1-4, James is found in a place that only his disciples are found. In Acts chapter 1, the disciples are waiting for the Messiah. He's died. They're waiting. And it says in 1-14 actually, It says, all these, the disciples with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. James responded to the invitation and he began to live in the community. He gathered with the disciples. He was there praying with them. In that community, 
he had said, I'm going to follow Jesus, which means living in community. It also means that he lived in community not only with these, but others in the church as well. In Galatians chapter 1, we see that Paul had become a Christian, and then Paul was persecuted, and he went into Arabia for three years to learn, to study, to get his head back together again. And then in 118, Paul says something about James. He says, and after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. James started living in community. He started becoming the pillar of the church, we read in Galatians 2. Towards the end of his life, Paul's life, Paul goes and sees James again. James responds to the call to discipleship. James lives in community. And then James serves sacrificially. He's the pillar of the church. James, a historian later writes, was known, his nickname was Camel Knees. Because he was a prayer warrior. Apparently, he spent so much time on his knees that they were big and, you know, not good looking, but great if he prayed for you. I like those guys' knees. A prayer warrior, he later was crucified or, or martyred in 62 AD. James sacrificed, living sacrificially, followed Jesus, lived in community, served sacrificially, and then James chose to live on mission. In Acts chapter 15, the last passage we'll go to, you didn't know there were these many passages about James, did you? In James 15, there's a problem in the church. There's a big, in fact, there's a conflict. It says it was a great conflict in the local church in Jerusalem. Paul and Barnabas had gone and were sharing the gospel and Gentiles were coming to know Jesus. Those that weren't Jewish, they had heard the good news. They were following Jesus saying, yes, we want to be disciples as well. The church in Jerusalem said, wait a minute, wait a minute. The good news is for the Jews. And if they want to receive this good news, they've got to come our way. They've got to keep all the laws. They've got to be in a certain box And Paul and Barnabas are saying, wait a minute, we saw them come to Christ. We know their faith. We saw them baptized by the Holy Spirit. And there was this conflict in the church in Acts chapter 15. And in the middle of the conflict is a guy named James. Read with me in Acts 15, 12. And all the assembly fell silent. This was after the debate. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related with signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. And after they finished speaking, James replied, brothers, listen to me. And then James gives a sermon on his view of the living God, saying how we live life is based on who God is. And James takes them through the Old Testament, proving that, hey, The gospel is open to all people, even Gentiles. And because James got up there and quelled that conflict in the church, we Gentiles get to worship. We don't have to go through the Jewish law. James followed Christ, became a disciple, lived in community, 
served sacrificially, and then his life was one on mission till his death. In January, as the church leadership started thinking about what do we do this year as a church, we thought of those four things. Let's love Europe in a way that we invite people into a discipleship journey, to live in community and teams, to serve sacrificially and return on mission, just like we're all asked to do. And as you know, God did some wonderful things this past year. When we started off at the beginning of the year, we wanted anyone who wanted to go, and 270 of you said, yes, I'll go. Several hundred said, I'll pray every day for 15 minutes. Thousands of you gave to those who went. And some of you gave thousands. (laughs) Over $800,000 came in small checks for those who went. God was calling us to a discipleship journey that we would be followers of Christ. We put everyone through some training, membership class, so that they would know Christ. So that when they went they also could share the good news of Jesus Christ. And several things happened. Let me tell you some stories. On a discipleship journey, we went to a place in London, and there's be some pictures that may go on behind me, may not go on behind me. But calling these kids, London looking a little different than you would think, into a place where we could do a sports camp and a crafts camp so that they could hear the good news of Jesus, so that they could make a decision to follow Jesus Christ. In this camp and in a later camp in Ukraine, I heard just a couple weeks ago that 10 kids said, yes, I will follow Jesus. They responded to that discipleship journey. And after that, we had another team go to Stockholm and they went with a movement that's a group that wants to plant 20 churches by the year 2020 in Stockholm, Sweden. If you know anything about Stockholm, Sweden, that's impossible. That's why we're partnering with them. They have five churches so far. And our team got to witness a baptism of some that have come to faith responding to a discipleship journey. And then some lived in community We had three teams that just returned this week. And as you notice, every time a team returns, we put their picture up. Next week, we commissioned six more teams. We're still going. But this team, we had a team, another team come back from Stockholm where they were doing video, uh, videography for the church movement. They produced five videos of each of these churches and prayer videos that'll be distributed around. They were even, they even used a a drone to take pictures around Stockholm and they got permission from the government to do it before the airport opened that morning so that they could take some, some great pictures. We had a team come back from Kiev who, um, who was a a medical team this past week and also did some children's work. We had a team come back from Denmark this week that worked with international students in the University of Aalborg. But in each of these teams, we were in community. The send-offs were precious here in the parking lot as we prayed for the, the teams. The high school team, 37 went out. I remember seeing all 37 lined up in front of the bus taking pictures, and I turned. There were 150 parents taking pictures. We all gathered around. There were Barnabas teams sending these teams. There were airport people going and picking up. Several of the teams came at 1, 2, 3 in the morning, and people volunteered eagerly. I'll go. I'll go pick them up. We lived in community. There's something happens when we're in community. 
And our team, one of our teams that was in Kiev, they worked with Father Nicholas of the Orthodox Church. And he has a refugee center for Ukrainians that are coming from the east where there's the battles going on. And they're coming into Kiev and he has this refugee center. And our team went and did a VBS for the kids, the refugee kids, and talked and encouraged the refugees who are having to start their life all over again. And they met a gal there, a woman who I'll name Anne-Marie. And Anne Marie's story was that she lived in eastern Ukraine. She was a baker. She worked for this bakery and, and, it, and she bought a house or an apartment there in eastern Ukraine and took a loan from the owners of the bakery. But in the war, the apartment was destroyed. She had to flee, was living in Kiev, but still felt she owed a debt. So she would go back every month to eastern Ukraine work for the bakery where they said, we'll take some money for your debt, we'll give you some. And it was a persecuted situation where she would go back, very dangerous. She had kids, but went back anyway. And on going back, she realized that they weren't being very fair. In fact, she was indebted to them for her for almost ever. They weren't really putting the money against her debt and realized this was an enslavement because of her faith and because of the situation. When our team heard that story, they reached in their wallets, they pulled together enough money to free her completely from her debt, $600. They presented it to her and said, this is what God does for us. He frees us from our debt. Isn't that exciting? Living in community, a wonderful thing. And then serving sacrificially. Some of our teams were more sacrificial than others. When one team went into the refugee camp immediately at the beginning of the summer, it was in March, our first team, where we talked about refugees are coming into Lesbos by the thousands a day. We need a team. I remember standing here. Will 12 people go? And 12 people went. And as they sat there, on, or actually on the flight over, the EU made it a agreement with Turkey that they would take no more refugees so that anyone who got to shore was now a detainee. And our team landed and realized something had happened. Instead of giving, helping these refugees, they were handcuffed to be sent back. But for those that had made it, they gave them warm clothes. They gave them warm shoes. They would sit by the fire and talk to them. Remember one of the team members saying as they talked to this young mother and were giving her some clothes and some shoes, they said, uh, what's your story? She said, well, last night on the way over, my husband fell out of the boat, little Zodiacs with 30 people, and they shot him. Oh. Our team just sat with them, talking with them, multiple stories of what God is going to do and that, that God does have a plan and that these clothes and these shoes and this help is in the name of Jesus, serving sacrificially. One of our teams went to Brussels where we did a serve Brussels like we do Love Fullerton. It's churches that get together and serve in the city, but they went right after the bombing of the, the, the airport in Brussels. And they met one missionary couple there that were in the airport at the time of the bombing. In fact, Fred and Judy were three meters from the bomb. The bomb went off behind them. Shrapnel was in their back. They woke up seven minutes later, bodies around. And they got up there in Brussels sharing their testimony of how God has healed them of the shrapnel, the wounds in their back. They're both pretty much still deaf because of the noise, but they're faithfully serving because God 
has loved them. They live based on who God is, and that motivates them. One of the headlines we received during this summer was this. Combined Russian separatist forces attacked Ukrainian army positions in eastern Ukraine 54 times in the last 24 hours. And yet seven teams of our folks said we will go to Ukraine and did, serving sacrificially. And then continuing on mission. God has called us to continue on mission. In the city of Brussels, we met a a young man, Johan, who started a church in his house. The church got too big, so he took down the barn behind his house and asked us, would we help him build a building for that church in the back? And so our team of guys did. They went there, surveyed the barn area, and they built it in seven days. This man who lives on mission wants to be a witness. But the goal of Love Europe was not just to go do mission in Europe, but to be changed, all of us, seeing God's hand and be on mission when we come back. One of the teams, the London Three team, trying to keep them all straight, there are 25 of them, they went to London to converse with people on the street. So here's what we told them. Would you like to go on a team where we'll train you to talk to strangers, turn the conversation to a spiritual conversation, then invite them into a Bible study? And most of these would be Muslim people on East London. And a group of people said, we're in. We'll do it. How many of you would say that? I didn't go on that team. I haven't gone on any. But anyway, they went. And they saw God use them in a wonderful way as they worked with our missionary, Danny Onarud, who has these discipleship Bible studies. But when they met a few weeks ago after they had come back, the team was talking and Andy, the leader, said, hey, how's it going? And one of the gals, Kathy, said, it changed my life because now I see how easy it is to talk about Jesus. And she said, in fact, it was reported to me, she said, When I came back, I've already led three people to the Lord. And I thought, you got to be kidding. So I called Kathy a couple days ago. I said, Kathy, this is what they're saying. Is it true? She said, no, Dan, I've led four to the Lord. (laughs) I go, yes. I mean, three of them were Somalian kids she met on the side, outside a church, and just talked to them and led them to the Lord. Returning on mission. Well, that's discipleship. That's our church on mission. But as we gather together, God speaks to all of us and says this, will you come into a discipleship journey with me? Will you follow me? Will you choose to live in community, serve sacrificially, be on mission? James said yes and the world was changed these folks in love Europe said yes the world has changed and their world has changed we have the opportunity to say yes I will will you bow in prayer with me our heavenly father we thank you for your word We thank you that when we come, you speak to us mystically. Father, I know there are some here who do not yet know you. 
and who want to know you. So, Father, give them courage to say, yes, I want to follow you. And if you're one of those that want to follow Jesus, there's a team in the back right corner that will show you how you can follow Jesus. And God's calling some of you into community. You've been here. You've been a loner. No. James said, I can't be a loner. I want to be in community. Jesus calls all of us to be in community. Out on the plaza, you can get involved in an adult fellowship any age, a marriage group, one of the support groups for many different issues. Say, yes, God, I'll be in community. And then God calls us to serve. Some of your hearts, God's been saying, I want you to do this. I want you to do this. And you're saying, I'll get to it. I'll get to it. No, he wants you to serve. And when we say yes, ah, the joy of living on mission. So God, we thank you that we can love you. We thank you we can worship you. You are our cornerstone. You are the strength of our heart. You are the desire of our life. So as we sing, as we worship, make this the prayer of our heart. May we live according to your will because you love us and you're holding our hand tightly. We give you thanks in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.